Are you past the point of weary? Is your burden weighing heavy? Is it all too much to carry? Let me tell you about my Jesus. Do you feel that empty feeling? Cause shame's done all it's stealing. And you're desperate for some healing. Let me tell you about my Jesus. He makes a way where there ain't no way Rises up from an empty grave Ain't no sinner that he can save Let me tell you about my Jesus His love is strong and his grace is free And the good news is I know that he Can do for you what he's done for me Let me tell you about my Jesus And let my Jesus change your life Disappear. Oh, let me tell you about my Jesus and all the wrong turns that you would going on to if you could. Who can work it out for your good? Let me tell you about my Jesus. He makes a way where there ain't no way. Rises up from an empty grave. Ain't no sinner that he can save. Let me tell you about to begin our opening scripture in John's Gospel, chapter 14, which will be on page 1242. It's 
So John chapter 14, page 1242. Well, I hope each of you are great, and this has been a good week for you, but maybe it's been a long week. Maybe it's been a stressful week. Maybe this morning, getting here, getting the coffee made, all the things that, that we do just to be here seemed like a lot. One of my favorite things that Jesus says in the New Testament is this word peace, and it's a word that is, has much more meaning I think in Jesus' context and in God's context than it does for us. In the Old Testament, peace is the word shalom. And it means peace, uh, but it means integrity. It means wholeness. It means completeness. It means the opposite of incompleteness, the opposite of chaos. And so it is in the New Testament that when Jesus uses this word peace, he means the opposite of chaos the opposite of incompleteness. And surely we can imagine our morning or our week or our life and know that we need peace, that we need the opposite of chaos and incompleteness. So read with me this scripture from John's Gospel, chapter 14. We'll read verses 25 through the first part of 27. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So after teaching his disciples for three years, Jesus gives this great sermon and reminds them many of the things that he's spoken to them. And then he says, my peace I give to you. He's not giving them a token at that moment. He is saying that if you take hold of all the things that I've shared with you, if you remember all the miracles and the words and the instructions, and then you receive my Holy Spirit, you may have peace. So today, um, we can choose to be in this place, to remember all the things that the Lord has done in our lives, to grab a hold of the scripture and the things that he has used to change us. We can choose to receive the spirit fresh right now and enter into an absence of chaos. And the spirit will work in our lives today. I pray this would be so. Would you join me to pray together to the Lord? Gracious God, merciful God, God of all true peace, we ask to receive your spirit this morning. We beg that your spirit would be poured out in this place mightily, that it would quench, quench all flesh, that it would quench all chaos, that it would quench all incompleteness, and that we would be complete and peaceful and resting in your word today. Would you fill us and make us new? In Jesus' name, amen.
My heart was lost, tangled deep in sin, wandering far from grace and veiled in shame. Yet with boundless love, you have brought me home. Now, my greatest prize to know your And in your presence here, my joy is found. Knowing you, 
Good morning. Well, I loved all the songs this morning, a wonderful time of worship. And I was thinking about that last song as it says, this is what we call glory. And uh, I was thinking about the word glory and, and, and its understanding means a weighted presence. And so I, and, and I was just thinking about your glory being upon us and it just covers us and 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 it's because he's alive and I just loved the opportunity to worship in that place we've been studying in the book of John over the last few weeks and couple of months and we're going to continue there today we're going to be on page 1233 John 9 John chapter 9 John chapter 9, verse 1, it's on page 1233. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but the works that the works of God should be revealed in him. We're going to stop there today. We're going to kind of look at understanding this scripture. So Jesus is walking along. He comes to this man who it says in verse 1 is blind from birth. 
And then his disciples say, Rabbi, who sinned? His, this man or his parents that he should be born blind. You see, the disciples understood far more than what we understand sometimes. I'm afraid we haven't taught the completeness, the understanding that they walked in. And that was that our sins can affect our health, they can bring diseases, they can bring sickness, they can bring uh, conditions that destroy and torment our lives. As they come and they said they knew really fully well that it was very possible that sin had caused this situation, this condition. But Jesus answers and he says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. In other words, Jesus is not saying that is not true. Don't ever think that again. He doesn't say that. Nor does he say that is no longer true now that I'm here. He doesn't say that. But rather he says that this one, this time, this one, this miracle that he's going to do is to allow God to be revealed through him. It was for the glory of God. It was for God's purpose. So this one was not caused by sin. But oftentimes sin does cause sickness, disease, conditions that we sometimes don't think about it being in that way. And we just go to the doctor, get some medicine and move on. And we never stop to truly look at what's going on. One of the things I want to talk about today, we've been looking at John and the places that Jesus is being, has been healing and the teachings that he's bringing out of those places. One of the places we're going to look at today is whether or not generational sins can be passed down. This is a topic that is widely discussed and many different opinions about it but what we want to know today is is what is biblical is it biblical is it truth that generational sins by your parents your grandparents their grand their parents your great-grandparents could have passed down generational sins into your life is that biblical but one other thing to think about is is are you walking in a way that you are passing down generational sins to the generations coming so I want to look at a couple of things to start with I want to show you one of the scriptures that they would be very familiar with, and it's out of Zephaniah. It's on page 1086. Zephaniah 1, verse 17. 
page 1086, chapter 1, verse 17, and the prophet writes the very words of God here. And he says, I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Now, I would agree that this has two meanings. It means spiritually that there's going to be distress upon men because they're walking spiritually blind. But the other thing is, is that it says because they have sinned. So this is a physical application as well as a spiritual application. Because of their physical sins, they are spiritually blind and they are, uh, have an opportunity to be physically blind. Why would I say that? Let's turn back to Exodus 20. It's on page 83. Page 83, Exodus 20. Moses has gone up on the Mount of Mount Sinai and he's received the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words of God, and he's brought them back down. We're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 20. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting, so that means passing down, the iniquities of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. This word hate me, I, I, I don't really like the word hate there because I don't believe it gives a full understanding of what God is saying. Rather, it's a place of turning against. So God is saying is that these people who turn away from my ways, turn against me, turn against the things I am laying before them. I am giving them as commandments. The ones who turn against those, their sins will be passed down to the third and fourth generation. Turn with me a few pages over to Exodus 34. It's on page 101. Chapter 34, Moses goes up a second time to, uh, to the Lord, meet with the Lord on Mount Sinai. And in verse 1, you can see there, and it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first one. 
You know, he broke the first one because they were uh, an abomination before the Lord. And now he's come and he's speaking with the Lord again. And the Lord is saying, we're going to write these again. And so now you would look in verse 5. It says, now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. So this is what he said. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Oh, don't we love that about the Lord? We love that scripture right there. We have songs about it. We sing about it. We rejoice in the place that, God, you are gracious, you are merciful, and you are long-suffering, and you abound in goodness and truth. But read verse 7, keeping mercy for, a thou for thousands. Oh, we love that. Keeping mercy for thousands. Forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sin. Oh, we love that, Lord. By no means clearing the guilty. But he does this. He does not clear out those that are guilty. He does not just bypass sin. It says, rather, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So this is as much a part of God's, of who God is and his holiness is what I want you to understand as his goodness and truth and long-suffering and mercy. It is a part of his holiness. It is a part of who he is. You see, he cannot just accept sin. His holiness does not allow it. So there's been much controversy over generational sins. And most people would say that once you become a Christian, generational sins have no, no longer have an authority in your life. Most people would tell you that if they are a believer in Jesus, if they have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, then these places no longer have an authority. But I hope to share with you today things that God has shown me for many years and that I have uh, seen to play out to be truth. But more than that, his scripture backs it up to be truth. And that's what we have to go with is what God's scripture helps us to understand. So I want to start off by telling you that there are three what I would call developments, um, growths, uh, expansions, there are three progressive states that a believer, someone who's made Jesus Lord, someone who's given their life to Jesus will go through. It's going to happen. So there's three stages, if you will. The first one is justification. Justification the Bible uses this word referring to when you are made righteous, in right standing with God. And this would happen when you come and truly surrender yourself to Jesus. 
making him Lord and Savior of your life, that you recognize that you're a sinner and that you need a Savior and you surrender to him in that place. In that place, you would be what we called saved. So I'm going to show you a couple of things that are interesting because there's a place where you are saved, you have been saved. There is a place where you're being saved and a place where you shall be saved in the future. All of these encompass salvation. I don't believe there's any part of it that can be excluded. It requires all three stages for true salvation. Paul talks about this a little bit when he talks about running the race and finishing the race. So I want to look at a couple of scriptures that help us to understand justification. If you'll turn with me to Romans 10, it's on page 1303. Romans 10, page 1303, Romans 10, verse 9. It says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus... And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So he's saying that if you confess that Jesus is Lord, and that you believe this in your heart in such a way that this belief is a place of trusting him enough to change your life into the manner that he has for you, and that he was raised from the dead, you'll be saved. That brings you into righteousness, which is right standing with God. That's done as a free gift, as you will see, by Jesus, that you will no longer be seen as a sinful person before God, you will be seen as righteous, in right standing before God. All right, turn with me to Ephesians 2 8 on page 1343. Page 1343. It's verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. So this is, for by grace you've been saved. So you have been saved at this place when you come and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And this saved, not faith and not grace, but this place of salvation is the gift of God. But it is by grace through faith. 
turn with me to Acts 2. It's on page 1254. says in verse 38, Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So in this place of justification, there is a requirement, and that requirement is, first of all, to make Jesus Lord of your life. You must repent that you have a sinful nature that you understand that you do not walk in the ways of God and that you need a Savior because you are destined for eternal death. So in this place, Peter is saying, you must repent, every one of you, and be baptized. And I believe baptism is a part of salvation. It is a place of your first moment of coming to be obedient to Christ. I don't believe baptism saves you, but I believe as you come in alignment with what God's will is and his perfect will, baptism is a part of your life. So it says for the remissions of your sins. So Jesus died and his blood covers your sins. It also says that you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All of these things come in under this justification, this place of repenting, this place of being baptized, this place of receiving the Holy Spirit. Let's look at one more scripture in John, uh, 1 John 2. It's on page 1398. Verse 2, it says, He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. This place, he is the offering that would appease the very anger and wrath of God. He would satisfy this place of wrath, and he would pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin. Not only my sin, not only your sin, but the whole world. So in in one time, he paid the price for the penalty, for the atoning work of all the world's sin. If we look over to 1-9, or look, look up to 1-9, it reminds us here that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what happens is, People come to this place of justification, this first step. They make Jesus Lord. They repent of their sins. They receive the Holy Spirit. They're baptized. And they mark themselves as being in the club and saved. I see it over and over and over throughout my life how this has happened. 
But here's the problem. Two or three days later, people find themselves in a place of sin. You see, not all sin has gone away. Not all sin is, is done with. Yes, Jesus died for your sin. But not all of your sin is gone. The opportunity for your sin to be gone is there. And it's there for the whole world. But the whole world doesn't walk sinless. But the believer doesn't walk sinless either. Maybe a few days after they are baptized and, and in this great place with the Lord and, and they're thinking, I'm in, I'm in. Then they find themselves lying about something. Seems like just a small thing, but they are. Or maybe they find themselves angry. You know, but they, you know, drop the hammer on their foot and so it really hurt and they used some really angry words and they got mad at the people standing around at them. But, you know, they've come and they've made Jesus Lord. How is this happening? I want you to understand that part two, the next step of a believer's life is sanctification. A place of growing into the holiness that God requires for us to grow in to be truly saved. Are you saying this is a part of salvation? I am. I am. And I want to give you a couple of scriptures. Uh, let's start, first of all, with 2 Corinthians on page 1328. Chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. <clears throat> By the way, as you're turning there, <clears throat> this word sanctification means to be set apart. Set apart from the world. Why? Because the world is in sin. Set apart from sin. That's what sanctification means, is to be set apart, to be made holy. So sanctification is truly the work that the Holy Spirit is doing to bring you into holiness. In fact, in 1 Peter, you find Peter said, be holy. He's quoting the Lord. He said, because I am holy. He, be holy. It's a place, a command. Be holy. So you have to come in alignment with sanctification if you're truly a believer. Now what's important is that you have to understand that not by works you are not saved. You never are able to be good enough to bring yourself to step one of justification. Only Jesus, only through faith, only by his grace are you saved not by anything you've done, but out of being saved, out of being redeemed by his blood, then you are called to begin to 
allow the Holy Spirit to work in your lives to bring you into holiness. But you are still commanded to come into this process. You don't get a pass. So looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, it says, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ. Wow. The fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. In other words, in the world, you're the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved. In other words, it's a continuing process. It doesn't say among those who are saved. It's saying among those, including yourself, who are being saved, who are running the race. Turn with me to page 1245, John 17. John 17, verse 17. If you'll remember, this is my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. So if you ever want to know what my favorite chapter in the whole Bible it is, it is this place with John. Because Jesus is talking and praying over his disciples. Oh, before he is crucified. And one of the things he says is in verse 17, is so powerful the things that he would say in his last few minutes with his disciples. And he says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus is saying to the Father, he's praying this over the disciples, he's saying, sanctify them, set them apart, bring them into holiness. How? By your truth. And then it says, your word is truth. So he does this through the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing forth his word into your heart. To saying, uh, lying's not okay. God is not okay with lying, girl. You can't be trusting in your salvation if you're going to continue to allow yourself to align in sinful ways. Jesus is saying, sanctify them. Grow them in your truth. Look at Ephesians 5.26 on page 13.47. Paul is writing here to the church in Ephesus and he's talking about how husbands and wives should be sanctified so that they can reflect the very essence of who Christ is and in verse 25 it says husbands love your wives 
just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her. What's he talking about? The church. That he might sanctify, that he might set apart, that he might bring the church into holiness with the washing of the water by the word. In other words, it's this picture that he's cleansing the church and bringing her into his holiness. Turn back just a few pages to page 1341, Galatians 5. Thirteen forty-one, Galatians 5, verse 16. Paul again is writing to the church, and he is, says this many, many times in different places. He says, I say then, walk in the Spirit. That was Paul's big thing. He said, walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Don't walk in the flesh, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He says, if you walk in the Spirit, if you walk in alignment with the Holy Spirit, if you walk in the ways of God, you will not be walking in your own desires and what feels good to you and what you're okay with. You won't have your anger. You won't have your worry. You won't have your anxiety. You won't have your lying going on. You won't have these things that are not sexual immorality. You won't have these things because you're walking in the spirit in alignment with God, not in the flesh. And then he goes on, he says, for the flesh lust, for the flesh lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. See, he's making that so clear. He says the flesh and the spirit, they're warring against each other. But if you walk in the Spirit, you're not going to do these things that you want to be doing, that you wish you could do. You're not going to be there. It says, but if you're led, in verse 18, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Yeah. Well, what does that mean? People say, well, if we're if we're saved, we're no longer under the law. That's not what it's talking about. He's saying if you are walking in the Spirit, the law doesn't bring any penalty against you. If you're not sinning, there's no law against that. Verse 19 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, and he lists a bunch of the places that need to be sanctified like adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, you know, arguing and having to be right all the time, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, anger, you know, this is being angry and enraged, uh, selfish ambitions, having d d division among, among your friends, people, um, dissensions, heresy, you know, just discord, conflict, envy, murderers, drunkenness, rivalry, and the like. 
And he says, and that's just a list of few. That's what he's saying when he says, and the like. Which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in the time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, this is not taught in the way that Paul is bringing this to us in this strong understanding is that these places he's talking to believers and he's saying, but you've got all this trash still in you. Yes, you've come to the first level of being saved and Jesus brought you to that place when you bowed the knee to him being Lord and repented of your, your sins. And he saved you and made you righteous right there. But now comes the opportunity for you to join in with the Holy Spirit. And that is what it requires. And God's word that this sanctification might happen that these places that Paul just read to you might be cast out of your life and no longer have an authority. Why? Because he says, because if you practice such things, you will not inherit the kingdom of, Christ, of God. I don't care if you've gone through step one. You continue in these places and Paul says very clearly here and in several other places, you will not inherit the kingdom. He's talking to believers. He's talking to the church. And you know what he's saying? He's saying because if you don't do these things, if you don't choose to align with the Holy Spirit in working out these things, then you really haven't made Jesus Lord. You see, step one wasn't real. You really never made Jesus Lord because it never lasted in your life. Maybe you did for a moment. Maybe it, 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 at, a, at a great time and it seemed like the right thing to do and you said all the right words, but your heart wasn't willing to change. And so you were still in rebellion, really, is what it is, because you're rebelling against the Holy Spirit coming and moving you into the holiness of God. Turn with me to 1 Peter on page 1391. This is, I believe, the scripture I was quoting to you a minute ago. Sure enough, 1 Peter 16. And Peter writes right here, It is written, because it is written, Be holy. Let's start reading um, in verse four, 14. It says, As obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lust as in your ignorance. No, you're not in ignorance anymore. The Holy Spirit is going to come and begin to say, This is not okay. You can't walk this way. You can't be in this manner. You can't continue in this sin. And it's saying, So you can't go back 
and, and be your former self. Then verse 15 says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. So Peter is saying the same thing. You cannot continue in your sins and expect God to be okay with where you are. You are no longer in right standing. You are no longer set apart. You are no longer walking in holiness. You're doing your own thing. You're not under the authority of, of leadership of God's Holy Spirit. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4 on page 1358. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. It says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Did you hear that? For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. So this is true on every sin in your life, that it's the will of God that you be sanctified. You cannot be in God's will if you are not being sanctified. And I want to tell you, I believe sanctification lasts until your last breath. I believe that. I've seen it true in my life, and I've seen it true in, others li in other lives. It's a place that God is continuously drawing us into his holiness. Now, if you look uh, over to uh, chapter 5, verse 23, it says, Now may the God of peace, I love that place Daniel brought us to this morning of understanding this place of peace not chaos he's bringing us out of chaos he says and now may the God of peace himself sanctify you set you apart bring you into holiness consecrate you sanctify you completely do you hear that he goes on to say this in a strong way. He says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Completely. That this is not just a little work, but he's going to continue to work. And then it goes on, it says, may, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to tell you something really important about this verse. Spirit, soul, and body. When they are under the authority of God, they work together. When they are not under the authority of God, then you find the enemy has authority. So what am I saying? I'm saying that you have chosen for Jesus to live in your spirit, but you have chosen to remain in sexual immorality in your mind, in your soul. I want to tell you, that will have an impact on your body. 
Maybe you're lying. Maybe you're not telling the truth. Now that's going to have an impact on your body. And I want to tell you something else. It will have an impact on your spirit. They work together. You cannot remain in the sexual sin that you're in or in the anger problem that you're in or in the, the lying that you're in or in the manipulation that you're in. Whatever you're in, you can't remain in that place in your soul that it will not begin to deteriorate the spirit. Jesus is no longer Lord. You're Lord. I saw that in my life. And I've seen it in others' life, other lives. How did Jesus handle these kind of places? I want to take just a minute to look at that. So turn with me to Matthew 12. We'll not do all of these, but I'll grab a few of these and we'll look at this, how Jesus handled these places. So it's on page 1125, Matthew 12. I want to read this one first for you. Uh, Jesus called many, many times, you will see these places, he called them unclean spirits. Sometimes he called them demons. They're all the same. They all line up with, with the enemy and not with God. It says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in, or, and, and, uh, put in order. We've talked about this place many times, that this place of when an unclean spirit is cast out of you or is cleaned out, then, then it goes out. But then in a while, it will come back to see if it can come back in because the house is not filled up with Jesus. The sanctification is not filled up and is not happened. And he goes, oh, there's still a place open for me, and I'll go in. And then he brings his other friends with him. And the person is worse than before. Turn with me to right here to Matthew 10, a page back. Matthew 10, 1. And, and starting in verse 1, it says, and, and when he had called his 12 disciples to them, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now, for many years, I thought that what Jesus was doing is that he was giving authority that he himself would cast out 
demons and cast out unclean spirits and heal the sick. And he was giving the same authority to the disciples. But what God began to show me is that oftentimes these people are one in the same. Jesus is giving the disciples the authority to cast out the unclean spirit and heal the sickness that is caused by this unclean spirit. Not always, but many, 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 many times I have seen this over and over and over, that there is a sickness, that there is a disease, that there is a condition, that something is going on in somebody, and they come for prayer, and as we seek the Lord, the Lord speaks and says, there's an unclean spirit, and that spirit has to leave before the healing will take place. I've seen it over and over and over and over again. That's exactly what he's teaching the 12 disciples. As you see this, he says, go out and I'm going to give you power over the unclean spirits. So you can come to someone and you say, listen, do you know that you're in the spirit of manipulation? Do you know that you're in the spirit of fear? Do you know that you're in the spirit of anger? Do you know that you have a sexual spirit? These are spirits places we can cast them out if you're willing to make Jesus Lord over this place and then you can pray for healing looking at um, chapter 8 just a page back 8 verse 16 says, and when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. You see? It's all coming together, isn't it? Now, look with me to um, Mark 3 on page 1252. Page 12, I'm sorry, 1152, I'm sorry. On page 1152, Mark, Mark 1, actually, let's start there. I don't know, I gave you lots of places. Mark 1, on page 1152, verse 27, it says, Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. You see, they knew that if you're in sin, if you're not in alignment with God's commandments, with his ways and his truth, then unclean spirits have an authority in your life. If you do not walk in alignment with God's ways, Unclean spirits have an opportunity to have an authority in your life. You're not in right standing. You're not in right standing. Then it says, um, let me see, go over now, turn a page over to Mark 3, 11. <clears throat> Page 11, 54. And it says, verse 11, And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. You see, they are demonic spirits that have a right in your body and in your mind 
to bring destruction. Not because I say so, but because the Bible says so. Let me see. Turn a page over to 1157, chapter 5, verse 13. It says, And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. Turn one more page over, chapter 6, page 1158, verse 7. And he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. Turn a page, page 7, chapter 7, verse 25, on page 1161. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit, heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. Unclean spirits. This word unclean, it means an impure spirit. But the other thing that's really important about this is it means that it's become mixed. It's impure because it's mixed. If you go back and read in Leviticus, when we studied Leviticus some time back, it showed that you could not mix things that were holy with the unholy. Unclean spirits are when your spirit says it's aligning with Jesus and yet you're walking in darkness and you have an unclean spirit because it's mixed. And Jesus went about casting them out. He said, they can't be here if you're going to be a follower of mine. Paul. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians on page 1333. 2 Corinthians 10. It says, now... I, Paul, my, oh, I'm sorry, I want to start in verse 3. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, on page 1333. Everybody kind of with me? It says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Paul is saying, if you are a believer but you're walking in these places of unclean spirits. Maybe you have uh, unforgiveness in your heart. You've not forgiven someone. Maybe you have witchcraft. Maybe you have lust. Whatever it is, Paul is saying, 
you don't have to war against these places in the flesh. In other words, just trying to make yourself not do that. Has anybody in here ever, you've had a place that you go, that's not in alignment with God. I'm just going to, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to tell a lie anymore. I'm not going to uh, create uh, anger or align with anger or, or worry. I'm not going to do that anymore. And so you make a decision in your flesh that you're not going to do that. But sure enough, the next time the opportunity comes, you align with it again. And you go, ah, oh, I didn't want to do that. And you, and, and, but then the next time you come and, and, and you align with it again, it's because you're working out of your flesh. And Paul is saying, this doesn't work. We don't a war against these places in our flesh. It's not going to help. But he says, for the weapons of our warfare, what we will use are not the fleshly, they're not carnal, but they're mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, a fortress that has set itself up inside of you. I love understanding this place of stronghold because when I look it up, it, it's talking about a mighty fortress. It's, it's really a military uh, understanding. And, and so these, these uh, high places, these places that are not of God, have set themselves up as mighty fortresses inside your mind. And it's hard to get them down. It's hard to break them down. You are no match for the enemy and his fortress. But verse 4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down. So he says, In God you can pull these fortresses down in your head, in your thoughts, in your body that control you. He's saying, you can do this. You can pull them down through God. But then he goes on to say, casting down arguments. Oh, my goodness. Have you ever gone to battle with your mind and you're going, no, I don't want to do this? And the mind goes, it's okay. God's okay with this. You know, and, the, and the arguments begin in your head. Maybe it's an addiction to something. How about sugar? Anybody in here have an addiction to sugar? Oh, my goodness. And you try to get off of sugar or, as we were talking about, uh, snack foods or something like that, and the enemy begins to talk in your head, right? Maybe you're addicted to pornography, and you try to get away, and you say, well, no, but I, I'm not going to do that. But then you hear the enemy saying, one more time, just one more time. This is not really where you were. And it tries to draw you back in. That's what it's talking about. These fortresses that are inside of you, they actually have arguments against the very truth of who God is. And it says, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, the every high thing that places itself up as God in your life. This comes from an understanding back when they had the Asher poles and they were lifted up high to be worshipped. 
It's that kind of understanding. What is Lord in your life? Is it, is it the snack foods? Is it, uh, is it worry? Is it fear? Is it, you know, uh, unforgiveness? Whatever it is, it's in a high place. It's exalted above the very truth of God. Paul is writing, he says, you can bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. No, you will not reign in my life. Jesus reigns. No, you will not have authority in my body. Jesus reigns. Body. Soul. Spirit align with Jesus. Paul goes on to write in Ephesians. We don't have a lot of time to talk about it, but I want to look quickly at it. Page 1347. You see, when you understand these things, the whole Bible begins to make sense, doesn't it? It begins to come together to form the understanding that Jesus has authority over all things. And that when you're walking in true salvation, you will align with the Holy Spirit in sanctifying who you are. If you don't want to do that, you're in rebellion. If you don't want God to change your ways, you're in rebellion. There's no doubt about it. Chapter 6, verse uh, 12, Paul writes here in a familiar um, scripture. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, and against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. You, my friend, are in a battle with unclean spirits. They're principalities. They're powers of the dark world. You are no match. You cannot do this on your own. You cannot become a good person and be in alignment with the Lord. You can become a holy person when you allow God's Holy Spirit to help you battle these dark principalities and powers. So we started out today talking about generational sins and can those be passed down. I felt like before we could even look at generational sins that you had to understand what truly walking in salvation looks like. Generational sins are simply one more layer that goes into the sanctification level. They're no different from any other sin. They are sins that have an authority in your life. Why? Because God set it up that way. And, and some people say, well, that doesn't seem right. Well, I don't care whether it seems right or not. We read it in God's law, the same law that says thou shall not steal and thou shall not lie and thou shall not commit adultery says that if you have 
unrepented sins, they will be passed down to the third and fourth generation. End of story. I don't care that you've given your life to Jesus. That doesn't matter. You can still be affected by generational sins because why? You have not brought them. They are still exalted places. And they have not been brought under the obedience of Christ. They can still have an authority. Paul told us how to get rid of these things. They have to be cast out. The gospel, Jesus taught the disciples, how do you get rid of these? It says, you go and cast them out. They're unclean spirits. You get them out. And you draw them under the authority of Christ. You get out. You have no authority here. I belong to Jesus. Get out. Generational curses. I have seen most of the people that God has allowed me to watch what he's doing in their lives and to pray with them as they walked through difficult places over and over and over again I have seen generational curses have an authority from controlling spirit to manipulation to racism to witchcraft to Freemason spirits, to addictions, to fear, to worry. If you are battling a place and you can't seem to get it to come under the authority of Christ and your heart has truly surrendered that this place will not have an authority, and yet it seems to still have. There is a very good chance that you are operating under a generational curse, that the generational sins have been passed down. How are you going to know? I love the scripture that Daniel brought today. God is so good. I thought, well, there's the answer. You ask the Holy Spirit. He's going to lead and guide you into all truth. Do you want to know how I found out that I had generational spirits in my life? I sat down one night and I said, Lord, do I have these? And he began to show me the generational sins that had been passed down in my life that had an authority in me. I thought... Maybe there would be one, but there were many, many. He just kept listing them, but he was faithful to come and to show me. And then after that period in time, he began to show me others that had an authority. So whether we're walking in sins that are unclean, 
that we've chosen to align with ourselves or we're walking in a generational sin, God wants to show you these places through his spirit and through his word he wants to sanctify you. All we have to do is ask. The last place that I want to share with you just quickly is the third development in a believer's life. There's justification, there's sanctification, and there's the glorified body. When you take your last breath here and you receive a new body and you spend eternity with Jesus out of the presence of sin. If you're here today and Jesus has been talking to you as we've looked at these many passages as as we've understood God's truth and what the Bible says about these unclean spirits. If you are here today and struggling at any of these places, our elders would love to be able to stand with you, pray with you as Jesus cast out these spirits and sets you free. Join me.
Search me. Search me and know. 